Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, John chapter 1 is where you can be turning. Uh, we began a new study last week of the Gospel of John. We'll be here for quite some time. Last week we started to take in the book as a whole and try to understand what John's goal is and how he's going to get us there. You remember, if you were with us, we talked a lot about the driving question that is driving the way that he is going to present this. Here's his question. He told us what it is in John chapter 20, verse 30. Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? That's the question before us as we come to this particular gospel account. There's a more general way you could ask it that I think still would be faithful to John's purpose. Who is Jesus? This is the question he is going to be leading us to understand better. And as we started to prepare for this last week, uh, we prepared by looking carefully at really two things, if you remember, the structure of his gospel and that purpose statement he gave in chapter 20. And when we talked about the, the structure of this gospel account, we said that the passage before us this morning is prologue. So we're going to begin talking this morning about John 1, verses 1 to 18. And we said that that passage is prologue for the wider story. I want to start by convincing you of something as we begin. Uh, if you hear this called prologue to the wider story of the Gospel of John, and that somehow makes you think less of it in terms of its relevance or its place in the story, uh, I would suggest that you have drawn the wrong conclusion from the word prologue. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite is true. There's a man named G. Campbell Morgan who writes about this, and he points out uh, very rightly that prologue, when, when we use that term to describe this section, we're not just talking about a preface, some kind of an optional set-up section to the story. Listen to what he says here. He says, this section is far more than a preface. In these 18 verses, we have an explanation of everything that follows from the 19th verse of chapter 1 to the 29th verse of chapter 20. All that follows is intended to prove the accuracy of the things declared in these first 18 verses. It is a summation. Everything is found in those first 18 verses. So when we start to unpack this section this morning, what we find is we're really unpacking the whole of the Gospel of John. Now that pre presents for us, especially this morning, something of, depends on how you want to use, how you want to describe this. Some might call it a problem. Maybe I'll describe it as a significant opportunity. We'll go, we'll, we, we need to, let's say it that way. We have something of a very significant opportunity before us this morning. Do you know what that is? The opportunity is that one of the things that John is going to be demonstrating in this gospel as he answers his question, who is Jesus? One of the things he's going to be demonstrating is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It's quite famously in this prologue, isn't it, in the first verse. And so that means that this morning, this is a Sunday that brings us face to face with the Trinity. We have some deep waters to swim in. And I'll just tell you right now, we certainly will not, as if we could, 
we will not be saying everything that we could say about the Trinity this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to hear what John says in these opening passages, and we're going to see that as the opening of a door on this theme, a door that we will continue to walk through uh, at many places and at many times and look at different angles and in different depths. Uh, so this is one of the themes that we'll try to think rightly about this morning. There are two themes that we'll see between this morning and next week, but that's the biggest. There's just no escaping it. That's the biggest. So I like this metaphor of a, of a door that he's opening. We're going to open two doors this week and next that are going to remain open throughout our time in John's Gospel. They are the doors of, number one, Jesus as the Word of God incarnate, and then number two, Jesus as the light of the world. These are the two big doors that are opened in this prologue, and this morning we're going to walk through the first door, Jesus as the Word of God incarnate. And let's stick with the metaphor. We walk th- when we walk through that door, you could say there are going to be two rooms behind that door. There is the room of eternality. We'll talk about that, verses 1 to 3. And then the room of incarnation and revelation. And we'll look at verses 14 to 18 uh, to come into that room. What I'd like us to do, though, to begin is to read all 18 verses of John chapter 1. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, 
he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Who is Jesus? John's first answer to that question is that Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. And the particular point that he starts with, we see in verses 1 to 3, is that of what we call eternality. Let's talk about this idea of eternality and how John expresses it. And it's good to notice that that's how he starts. Uh, Matthew, for example, started with an answer in his gospel to the question, who is Jesus? Uh, It came in the form of a genealogy that stretched back to Abraham. So Matthew pointed out that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Luke, as well, has a genealogy early in his gospel that stretches back to Adam, all the way back to Adam. So Luke's answer that he presents is that Jesus is the seed of the woman that was promised to Adam and Eve. Somehow, John manages to start his answer even further back than that, doesn't he? The first two words in his gospel are the first two words of the book of Genesis and the Septuagint. N-R-K, in the beginning. He brings us back to the very beginning of creation as he starts to open up his answer to this question, who is Jesus? And what John tells us is, I'm about to tell you about the word of God. And when creation began, that word was already there. In the beginning was the word. We have much to do to think about this word, word. (laughs) Uh, This idea of word. Logos is the word behind the word, word. You see how difficult a time I've had in figuring out how to speak about this in a coherent way? John is beginning by bringing up a term here, logos, the word, that has a great deal already of, of meaning in the minds of his hearers when he writes it, and a varied type of meaning. We know a lot about how the world of John's time thought concerning this word logos. Uh, They are living in a predominantly Greek thinking world, and we know how the Greeks thought about the logos. We have writings of the Stoics and these sorts of things. They wrote that the logos, the word, was the rational principle by which everything exists. Uh, that Greek thought had tremendous influence. It influenced a, a very well-known Jewish writer and thinker named Philo, who lived in Egypt. And actually, his lifespan overlaps that of Jesus. He lived in the same time that Jesus did. Philo wrote a lot about the, the Logos. Uh, I say these things just to make clear to you, in terms of the elite thought world of the day, the concept of this word was not a new concept. However, it's also not new at all in the revelation of God. And I agree with those who say, we have no reason to put into John's mind the Greek concepts of logos when he's writing this. Uh, Because um, the idea of a divine word shows up extensively in the Old Testament. And John is going to make much use of the Old Testament in this gospel. He clearly knows how the world around him is thinking and using this word. He's driving us 
at fulfillment of Scripture. He's driving us back to the Old Testament. One writer, D.A. Carson, does well with this. He details first how logos is used in the Old Testament. Um, and then he draws this conclusion. I thought this was helpful. Listen to what Carson says. He says, in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. Listen to this. But if the expression would prove richest for Jewish readers, it would also resonate in the minds of some readers with entirely pagan backgrounds. In their case, however, they would soon discover that whatever they had understood the term to mean in the past, the author whose work they were then reading was forcing them into fresh thought. Forcing them into fresh thought. What is the fresh thought exactly that John is telling us about concerning this word of God? And in just the first verse, there are three things that he tells us. We'll start by looking here. You could think of the verse as like a 1A, 1B, 1C. In the beginning was the Word, 1A. And the Word was with God, 1B. And the Word was God, 1C. You see the nice three-piece statement here? We learn something from John about this Word from all three of those. Think about 1A. In the beginning was the Word. We learn that the Word pre-existed God's creative act. As we've said, in the beginning points us very clearly and intentionally back to Genesis 1.1. As God began to create this logos that John is presenting to us, he was there already. And in a way, it's the basis for verse 3, isn't it? If the Word stood present as creation began, then he does not belong in the list of things that were created, does he? We'll continue to talk more about that, but look at 1b, and the word was with God. What do we learn about the word? Here the word is described as having clearly nearness or unity with God, but that's not the emphasis in 1b. The emphasis is that in some way there is some sort of distinction being made here. The word was with God. What kind of distinction? This is the sort of thing we'll continue to flesh out as we work through this gospel. But here, it's good for you to know, to, to know that when John says the word was with God, he does not use the normal word with here. This word can mean with, but it just doesn't very often. Uh, usually, there, there's two other words that are far more readily usable for the idea of withness. But this word does mean with sometimes. Every time that it shows up, though, in a way that we would want to translate as with, guess who the two parties are? The two persons. There's always, this is always a two-person witness. So even in the way he's describing the nearness, he's already beginning to speak to us in terms of a personhood distinction between this word and God. Now, let me pause here. Can you tell that we are walking into the deep end of the pool already. And we're walking into the deep end of a pool that we know has a bottom, roughly far beneath the bottom of the ocean, 
and that there is great mystery in, the, in what has been revealed to us concerning the Trinity. We're going to be working, starting this morning, at understanding what may we say concerning God based on what he has given to us, what he has revealed, and what may we not say. This is the sort of task that we have. At creation, this Logos was not standing off separate from God. This Logos was with God. Leon Morris says this. He says, the expression does differentiate between the two. The word and God are not identical, but they are one. Now, again, this is only one B. We have three statements in this statement, right? But you have here a statement of nearness, yet of diversity of some kind. And then you have the third statement, 1C. What did we read there? And the word was God. And we have to put these three pictures together to understand the picture that John is presenting to us concerning this word. Now, I have... I have here an aside. I, I thought about whether to put this to include this or not because of the time it will take, but I've decided it's worth it. So let me, let me, let me lead us into a, an aside here for a moment. Um, in order to say exactly what John is saying here, and we'll be fleshing out the intricacy of a statement here in a moment, but you need to understand that John very carefully words the phrase that he has here in 1C when he says, the word was God. That sounds like a very simple statement in our English Bibles. He has done a lot of work to say exactly what he's trying to say. So, for example, he puts the word God at the front of the construction, and he doesn't include an article with the word. I'm sorry that we're getting into uh, grammar class. This aside requires it. So if you don't like this, then you can just check out for a minute. I'll tell you when to check back in. Um, oftentimes... It is true. Oftentimes, in the Greek, when you, don't, when you have a noun without its article, that's the way that they write to convey an indefinite noun. So when there's no article, oftentimes you're supposed to say a fill in the blank. All right. So when the word God does not have an article with it, sometimes that means you're supposed to say a God. That's the way that you do it in the grammar. The Jehovah's Witnesses take that principle... Uh, and use the fact that there's no article here to justify their decision in the New World Translation uh, that goes like this, and the word was a God. I'm just so, uh, this happens all the time, but I'm, I'm amazed in the providence of God of how the elements of our service and our morning this morning have cohered from the songs to the prayers to the scripture reading, uh, but even uh, the Sunday school class uh, teaching this morning was on some of this very material, wasn't it? If you're not here for Sunday school, you are really missing out, I promise you. You should be here. But that's what they do with it. Uh, the word was a God, lowercase g. There's two problems with what they're doing. Number one, uh, there is a well-known and long-established rule of Greek grammar called Caldwell's rule, which is that when you have a... Here we go, one of these sentences. When you have a definite predicate noun that comes before the verb, like you have here, it usually does not have an article with it. In that construction, they didn't have to put an article with it to convey definiteness. God instead of a God. That happens all over the place. 
that you put it in this arrangement and you don't need to have an article. So, in fact, according to the rule, the construction here would most often suggest that you should say God, not a God. That's a problem for what the Jehovah's Witnesses would want to do with this verse. The second problem is tied to that. The second problem is that they clearly know that rule. Because most everywhere else where this happens, they don't do what they do in John 1, 1, C. They normally do what you're supposed to do. There are 282 times in the New Testament where you have the word God without an article. How many of those 282 do you think they render as a God? The answer is 16 out of the 282. 6% of the time. And in fact, in this very section, the first 18 verses, you've got six of those where the word God appears without the article. This is the only one where they translate it a God. These are big problems in terms of consistency and in terms of taking it seriously as a genuine translation effort. There's the end of the aside. So if you don't like that, you can check back in now, okay? The Bible really says what it says in your Bible that you're holding. The word was God. And here you have the ultimate statement of unity. If there's a distinction of persons, a person to a person in one B, there's a statement here of essential unity. The same in essence and substance. One commentator says this, nothing higher could be said than this. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the word. So in a single sentence, John creates a situation where it is true to say simultaneously that the Logos is with God and is God. Now what do we do with those statements that reflect both unity and diversity in God? What do we do with these things? Well, let's think about that. Here's what we ought to do as a first step. Uh, we say, yes, Lord. We always say, yes, Lord, as he speaks, because in him is truth. He is one who cannot lie. The standard of truth and of all things is him. We say, yes, Lord. We take all of the statements of God's word about God. We thank him for them, and we say yes to them. So we take statements like these ones in John 1.1, 1, 1, or the many others we'll see where Jesus displays divine prerogatives. He receives worship. He takes on the divine name, I am, to himself. He calls himself one with the Father. We take those passages. Or we take the passages where the Holy Spirit is spoken of as God. Or we take the passages where God's word states that there is only one God. Or the places where one person of the Godhead refers to another. Or where one speaks to another. Uh, we take all of these and we use them to gauge how we dare to speak about God. So before we move on, may I name for you just some conclusions that the church has deduced from Scripture in all of its full, complete revelation of God. What have we deduced from these things? Uh, seven statements I'll give you very quickly. Number one, God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, there is only one God, and he is triune, three persons, each being fully God. Number three, the Father 
is fully God. Number four, the Son is fully God. Number five, you see where I'm going with this? The Holy Spirit is fully God. Number six, there are not three gods, but one, because they share in the one divine nature. Number seven, though equal in nature, the three are distinct divine persons. And I'll flesh that one out. What that simply means is, the Father is not the Son, nor is He the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor is He the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor is He the Son. You see what we mean by distinction of persons? The very kind of distinction that John 1, 1, B seems to be already holding out for us, a distinction of person, of relation. J.C. Ryle expresses a very fitting conclusion from this verse. Listen to what he says. The truth contained in this sentence is one of the deepest and most mysterious in the whole range of Christian theology. When you came here this morning, did you know that we would be wrestling with and thinking about and, and trembling before one of the deepest and most mysterious statements in the whole range of Christian theology. Maybe that would have made you wake up a little bit faster or eat a little bit more for breakfast. I don't know. He goes on. It is an unanswerable argument against three classes of heretics. It confutes the Arians who regard Christ as a being inferior to God. It confutes the modalists who deny any distinction in the persons of the persons in the Trinity. Above all, it confutes the Unitarians who say that Jesus Christ was not God, but man, only a man. To all three of those mindsets, perspectives on the person of God, we say no. And as we consider the Word of God, we say no. No, the Word is divine. It is true enough that when John is speaking about the Word, he is not speaking about the Father, that's 1B. He is indeed speaking about God. That's 1C. Verse 2 adds nothing new, but you notice that it repeats two of those three. It repeats 1A and 1B. Verse 3, though, does add to this picture. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, in just a second, I'm going to read that again, and then I'm going to read verse 18 right after that. I want you to hear, you can look down there if you'd like, I want you to hear these two statements together, right? Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. How is it that God has been revealed? Verse 18, by his word, through his word. How is it that God has created? Verse 3, through his word. It is no jump, it's, it's no accident that John would move right from the word's relationship to God in verses 1 and 2 to the word's relationship to creation in verse 3. What's happening here is that we're learning about the distinct role of the second person of the Trinity as the means by which wisdom and will of God becomes known. 
And so it is with the things that were made. Verse 3 literally counts them. It uses the number one. It says, without him, there was not even one thing made that has been made. I don't know why we don't translate it that way. To me, that's far more powerful than anything. That he says, there was not even one thing made that was made. But that's what he says. This is what Paul says in other ways in Colossians 1.16. But there he uses three prepositions to describe Christ's relationship to creation. He says, all things were made by him, through him, and for him. That's how Paul describes it. We are talking here, when we talk about the word, we're talking about creator God, aren't we? We're not talking here when we're talking about the word. We're not talking about the Father, who is creator God, who has eternally begotten the Son. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit, who is also creator God, and who is active in the creation. We speak here about the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, who is the word of God, who reveals God, and by whom, through whom, for whom, all things were made. All things that have been made. Now I want us to shift now and start to think not about etern eternality, but about that second room of incarnation and revelation. Now, so far we've seen the eternal word of God who can be said to be with the Father and yet also be said to be God. Uh, please move down with me for the rest of our time into verse 14. Because here, here's where we finally come to see explicitly that as John has been writing about the eternal word, he has been writing about the pre-incarnate Christ. Do you notice that? That we're not given any connection between this word and Jesus until verse 14. It's the first time he informs us, exact, actually, that that's who he's talking about. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen... <coughs> And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We need to hear this morning what John says about incarnation and revelation. Here's the first thing that we hear. The Logos, the eternal word, took to himself a true human body. A true human body. John chooses to use the, the word uh, sarks here, flesh. Uh, he had other words he could have used, man, body, things like this. He picks the most blunt and unambiguous, the most you-can't-get-around-it word. This is, the, this is a defiance of a heresy that seems to have begun almost as soon as Christ ascended and the first cloud covered him up. seems that it started about right then. And it was the idea that Jesus, as he walked the earth, only seemed to be actually human. But it was something of an illusion, something less, something less than real. Because, of course, it had to be. Because the, the physical world, the flesh, is inherently wicked. God could never take on actual flesh. So this, there must be some sort of an illusion going on here. You see, you are tempted that way if you've come to think that there isn't, there's something inherently wicked about the physical world as opposed to the spiritual. This is what we mean usually when we talk about dualism. It's spirit, physical, the good, 
bad. This is the sort of, uh, of thing that, that, that is a breeding ground for that kind of a heresy about our Lord. And Carson wrote this. He said, if the evangelist had said only that the eternal word assumed manhood or adopted the form of a body, the reader, steeped in the popular dualism of the Hellenistic world, might have missed the point. But John is unambiguous, almost shocking in the expressions he uses. It, it's probably worth saying out loud that this is a tendency that we can face today. It may not be one that we're so conscious of as we think of the temptations that face us today. There are many. I think this is one we can face. Uh, Christians have always been, and often very counterculturally at different times, those who have insisted that the physical creation that God has made is a good thing. To be cherished and cared for and grateful for. Yes, all of it affected by the fall, all of it subjected to futility, we get it. But the Bible teaches us to care for our bodies, for example, and for the world around us that we are stewards of. In fact, the very point uh, about showing great respect for the body for these reasons, this is really what's been behind the long reality that Christians have always insisted on burying our own dead rather than cremating. It's the reason that there's been that, uh, that emphasis. We know as well as anybody, you put that body in the, in the coffin, coffin in the ground, and it's going to decompose. There's no confusion there. It's not about that. It's about a deliberate showing of respect, honor for the body that God has made, which will one day be resurrected, and which... Our Lord Jesus himself was not ashamed to take to himself. And take it on, he did. He took it on, get this, never to be taken off again. He is the God-man forever. The eternal word of God, clothed in humanity. As I speak to you right now, Jesus continue. I almost want to say he continues to be in this body. That body is a part of who, who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. And he will be forever and ever. The possession itself of that body is a part of the display of the glory of God. In what he has done. Why are the holes still in his hands and feet, even after the resurrection? Because the glory of God is on display there. And maybe you notice I've sort of slipped into now, we're not really talking so much about incarnation anymore. Now we're talking about the way that the incarnation presents a divine revelation. It's in this body that the perfect end all revelation of God's glory went on display. First verses of Hebrews remind us and tell us that God has communicated with his people in many times and in sundry ways. And in these last times, he has spoken to us in son, literally it says, in son. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself, and it is the culmination of his self-revelation. God in human flesh, 
put the character of God on display, the works of God on display, principally the self-sacrificial love of the cross on display. We read here, he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The word he uses there for dwelt is the verb form of the noun tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Again, other words for live, dwell, are available. He tells us that this word came and tabernacled among us. You're familiar with the tabernacle in the Old Testament, perhaps. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of the presence of God among men. Now, the person of his son incarnate is the dwelling place of God among his people. And John has not made that connection difficult to notice. What happens, think about this, maybe some specific examples will come to your mind. What happens in the Old Testament when God's presence comes and dwells with men? What happens? So Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus 24, all kinds of temple imagery there as well. In verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 40, they build the tabernacle. Verse 33, thus Moses finished the work. Verse 34, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. First Kings 8, they finished the temple. They bring in the ark. Verse 11, the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. John 1.14, the word, <coughs> excuse me, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. My friends, this is divine glory. But John, as he is bringing us deeper revelation as to the Trinitarian God, whose glory this is. Do you notice how he describes it? We beheld his glory. We have seen his glory. He continues, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This glory that is on display in the person of Jesus Christ is a glory full of grace and truth. And I would end our time this morning before offering just a single exhortation to us all I would end by, by having us look at this description more carefully, full of grace and truth. What is John getting at here? And again, I want to try to convince you of something. I want to convince you that John is pulling this from Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. Can I read that to you? You can look there if you'd like, or you can just hear. Uh, Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. So Moses has just asked God, please show me your glory. To which God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Right? Here's verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I stop right there because I think that is where John is directing our attention. Show me your glory, 
Okay, I will proclaim my name to you. That is to say, I will give you an intimate revelation of myself. It will involve several phrases, but when I tell you, Moses, what I abound in, what I am full of, I will say that I abound in two things, love and faithfulness. Two words that go together often. All right? I feel like we're going into the original languages too much this morning, but some of these points are, uh, this is what he's intending to do, so I don't know what else we can can do. I, I abound in love and faithfulness. My suggestion to you is that John is saying the exact same thing here when he says, the glory that we witnessed is full of grace and truth. In Exodus 34, he says, abounding in love, that love is not just any love, it is hesed, maybe you've heard that word before, covenant love, which he gives as an act of grace. And again, I've referenced Carson before, he refers, he's very helpful for us in this. He points out a great deal of scholarly work on the use of that word hesed. Car- Carson says, it has been shown quite clearly that it is the graciousness of the love that is at stake. So when God is extolled for his hesed love, his covenant-keeping love, What's being extolled in particular is his graciousness with which he would treat and regard his people. The second word is faithfulness, love and faithfulness. The word is emmet. You can give our upcoming uh, pastor who's moving here in a couple of weeks a pop quiz. Their third child's name is emmet. If you ask them, what does that, what does that name mean? Don't tell them I told you this. See what they do. Emmet. That's a good name. Emmett Smith? No, not Emmett Smith from the Bible. What's it mean? I, I would bet you that they will not say it means faithfulness. It can mean faithfulness, but far more often it does not, it's not translated as faithfulness. It's translated as truth. Truth is the word that is most often rendered there. There's a range of meaning. They're both fine translations, but my point is when John, if, if he is trying to pull here, from Exodus 34, as I'm arguing, and he uses the Greek word for truth, he's got it. He's pulling, it, it, it's a perfect uh, crossover from the Hebrew into the Greek. John is simply reiterating this Exodus 34 description. One person put it this way. He said, the glory, because think about what this would mean then, about what John is saying about this glory. He wrote, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth. That glory was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. This is the revelation that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what John got to see with his eyes and follow around with his feet. This is what he was seeing as he witnessed his person, as he heard his teaching, as he followed him to the cross. And if he's pulling from Exodus 34, you know another way to say what John is saying here when he says, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth? Here's another way to say that. Moses ain't got nothing on me. That's what John is saying. We, which is helpful to us. We marvel rightly, at Moses' request to see God's glory and the experience that he then had. But my friends, here's what we're finding. As Jesus walked the earth and John saw him and heard him and followed him, he was beholding the glory of God 
even more explicitly than did Moses. This is your Lord who reigns enthroned on high. If you know him this morning as your Lord and Savior, this is the one who saved you. And notice in that comparison, we're talking about comparing the Apostle John and Moses, comparing their respective experiences. How does the comparison go between Moses and Jesus then? Moses only bore witness to this glory. Jesus is the glory. Something greater than Moses is here indeed. Now we're going to continue next week to see John open all the doors in the house that we're about to enter through this gospel. And next week will flow well with our ending this morning of talking about revelation in the incarnation. Because next week we're going to hear the word described as the light that has come into the world. The true light. And we'll meet the one who came as witness to that light. But my friends, I would end with one closing exhortation. And it's just one because I think no matter who you are, where the Lord has you in your life right now, it is proper. It's proper for us all. And here it is. Let your awe and wonder and settled allegiance toward Jesus of Nazareth grow. Such is our time that when I began this morning saying we're looking at the answer to the question, who is Jesus? There may well have been a number of yawns had to be stifled. Let your awe and wonder grow regarding Jesus of Nazareth. When he shows up on the page here in a few weeks to come, let a cold shiver go down your spine. When you hear him speak, eat those words up. Let the number of nanoseconds between your hearing his words and your agreeing with his words be zero. Let it be zero. Let it be zero this morning, knowing that these are his words. Who on earth are we witnessing in these pages? This Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father now. Guiding and directing your life and the path of this country and the spin of the planet. He commands you still when you open your Bible. The Jesus is my boyfriend. Jesus is a kid's Sunday school answer. Ha ha. Sort of treatment of this God-man that we have received in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s has not done any of us any favors. It's high time that the, the bar measuring our awe and wonder for Jesus of Nazareth, it's high time that it shot sky high. And by God's grace, through his word, that's exactly what he will do in our lives going forward. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you 
for your word this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who attends it and who applies it to our hearts. And especially this morning, we thank you for the word, your son, eternally begotten, who took on flesh that he might bear the sins of his people in his person in order to perfectly represent his people as the faithful human covenant keeper. We thank you for him. Help us, Lord, to tremble before his greatness. We ask it in his name. Amen.